You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Please be seated. We're going to turn to God's Word to Isaiah chapter 63. Over the past few months in the mornings, we've been looking at these last chapters in Isaiah. And before we look at that, uh, just a couple of housekeeping things. I said I would do this every month, um, and again, we always have visitors and so on, and we always have new people, which is a wonderful thing, um, but just one or two things in terms of practicalities. There is a toilet at the door uh, on the way in. There are also toilets through there. If there ever was uh, a fire alarm, uh, please don't go and collect your children. Uh, they will be collected and taken out to the car park. You can leave out that door or that or that. There will be, those are the fire escapes. I feel like a kind of air stewardess. You know, <laughs> the exits are there, there, and there. Put your seatbelts on for the sermon. Um, uh, also, can request in terms of the children that they don't go upstairs without adults because uh, there's no like safety things there. So we don't want to see you. tumbling or falling and uh, at the door at the end I'm afraid we don't let children out on the street without an adult being with them because we're quite concerned Uh, and it's good to see the church growing in so many ways Uh, the couches at the back we ask that they be kept for nursing mothers and uh, you know we'd love to have children in Uh, today there's no spy group so the uh, library at the back with a speaker in it is available if the spy group is there there's always the creche as well Um, if you find that your children are becoming uh, noisy and disruptive. Uh, Adults who become noisy and disruptive will be dealt with by the stewards. Let's turn to God's word and Psalm 63. And just as uh, as we do that, um, the New Testament reading had this really interesting line. I don't know if you noticed it. In the midst of these parables, one of them is very short. It's about the owner of the house who keeps bringing new treasures out. Now, um, we've had the privilege of having our uh, granddaughter with us for this past week, and it's been absolutely great. But I remember as a grandchild going to my grandparents, and they utterly amazed me because every time we went, they bought new stuff out. It's just like this house had this, was this vast treasure trove of things. Well, Jesus uses a picture when he talks about... Um, I think this applies in terms of his word, that when we look at the Bible, you kind of think, like from my point of view, I've been doing this for 30 years, and you think, do you not get bored? Is it not just repetitive? It's not. Honestly, I, I find that, that God's word is just, it just keeps hitting me almost with just how relevant and how truthful it is. And it's my prayer that if you're here visiting, uh, and also those who regularly come, that Uh, you will hear the Lord speak through his word because there's nothing more thrilling than that. There's a, let's begin anyway, I'll read the first uh, few, we're going to just read through this whole chapter, but I'll uh, preach on it as we go through. So the first three verses, who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, 
from the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It doesn't sound pleasant. Um, by the way, uh, the fact that I'm wearing red trousers today is entirely coincidental. <laughs> I just thought about that just now. No, but um, what's, the, what's going on here? What's this, what's the, what is the picture? What's the background? What's the story here? God's people are, have been in enormous trouble. And basically, the end of Isaiah is prophesying the Messiah, that there's going to be one who comes, the servant who suffers, to rescue his people, not just the Jewish people, but also those who were to come afterwards. And there's an image here of somebody who's the watchman and who's looking and he, he sees the, uh, someone coming. I don't know if you've ever gone down to the Wishart Arch in Dundee, but it's worth going to see because that was the outer wall. And on the arch, somebody would stand, the watch one would stand, they'd be looking for enemies. Or if you went to Brotty Ferry Castle and you go there and there was always be a watchman looking out to see who would be coming to invade. Initially the Vikings, but then um, unfortunately the English. Um, <laughs> The Cromwell came and sacked this city, uh, and Cromwell's one of my heroes. He's my favorite Englishman, so, but I don't know what Dundee had done wrong, but we must have done something wrong because Cromwell didn't do things wrong. No. Um, but the watchmen are there, and they watch, and they see someone coming. Now, the, the key always in interpreting the Bible is to understand, other, look at other parts of the Bible, and this is a companion of earlier in Isaiah 59, where... Um, from verse 15, it talks about uh, truth being no one to, f- to be found. He saw that there was no one, so his own arm worked salvation for him, and he came himself. And what we have in Isaiah 63 is a poem with a kind of very dramatic dialogue highlighting what's called the day of vengeance. And that's very uncomfortable for us, so we're going to take a wee bit of time to look at that. It's also in the New Testament tied in with Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 to 16, where it's made very clear that Jesus is the person who's seen. Jesus as the warrior. Jesus is the one whose uh, robe, whose garments are stained red. So, let's say something about vengeance. Um, Dungan, can you turn down just a wee bit because I'm getting an echo in my voice. And makes me scared to raise it. Thank you. (laughs) Is vengeance not a bad thing? Be honest. You look at this and it says, I'm coming and it's talking about, I'm bringing vengeance. Surely vengeance is what's wrong with the world. There's a deliberate malice and a personal vindictiveness. It's the very opposite of love. I'll get you is the opposite of I love you and forgive you. But the Bible does say there is a place for vengeance, and I am thankful for it, and I'll tell you why. Because in the biblical sense, it's a final calling to account of those who have oppressed others and apparently got away with it. And I've used this example before, but I I apologize for repeating myself. But for me, one of the most vivid examples I've seen here is in a flat not very far from here, where I went to visit a couple who came to visit this congregation, both of whom had HIV because of drugs. And I went into their flat, and it was a, a typical drug flat. It was, the, the door was multi, multi-reinforced. 
And I sat down and talked with them, and it was a very, for me, very um, disturbing and very heartbreaking conversation, and I really, really felt for them. But at one point, they said to me, do you know so-and-so? And I said, no, I don't know him, but I've heard of him, a drug dealer in the town. And I said, why do you ask? And they said, do you believe that God will punish him? I said, why do you ask that? And they said, well, he came into this flat and he hung our kids out the window and threatened to drop them if we didn't pay him the money that we owed him. And they said, we hope he gets cancer. And I said, that's not how it works. But yes, God will punish. I said, because God does bring justice. But I said, that's for all of us. There's not just, the world's not just divided into the good guys and the bad guys. But there is such a thing as Justice. Now, the fact that we don't see it just now causes us to question and wonder. But you've got this paradox of people saying, I'm not going to believe in a God who allows this. And then at the same time, they say, I'm not going to believe in a God who punishes this. Now, that's contradictory. And the Bible tells us that God is absolutely fair and absolutely just. But he is not going to let injustice in the world go unpunished. And it will, as we see, be punished in one of two ways. Now, the image that's used here, why are your garments red? It's talking about being stained with blood, and it speaks of Edom and Bosra, and it's a play on words because Edom means red. So if you're a redhead here, you're an Edomite. You didn't know that, but you are. Uh, And uh, there was that whole idea involved with that. Bosra means the grape gatherer. So this image is of an avenging angel who's coming to to bring justice and to punish those who have done so much wrong. The world has been full of bloodshed for many, many, many years, and we cannot uh, get away from that. In fact, from Cain and Abel, it's been full of bloodshed. I'm reading just now uh, a novel based on uh, Caesar and Cicero. And, you know, Caesar, when he expanded into northern France, he quite happily boasted that out of an army or a group of people, women and children of 330,000, that he was attacking basically Germans and other tribes uh, and the the Finns, that he only left 100,000 alive. He just boasted of killing 220,000 people. Blood has been part of human history and remains part of human history. And so what's being said here is that God comes and he's going to deal justly. He is the one who speaks. Who is it? The response, it's I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So what's important here is to realize that when we speak of the day of God's vengeance, we're not talking about somebody lashing out in a temper. We're talking about somebody who speaks in righteousness and in absolute truth and whose judgment is absolutely pure. He is the one who is also mighty to save. And it's very important this. There is no restriction on God's ability to save people. And those of us who are Christians, we need to remember that because some of us look around and say, well, how can they become a Christian? And how could they become a Christian? And what about this? And what about that? And perhaps we look at people who are closest to us, who we prayed for many years, and we say, Lord, how how can this be? And we need to remember that God is mighty to save. He is concerned about his people as well. 
In Acts chapter 9 and verse 4, we read about this. Saul fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Here's an extraordinary thing. Anyone who persecutes and attacks Christians because they are Christians is not attacking and persecuting Christians, but is attacking and persecuting Christ. And that should make us fearful for them. I always feel sorry in that sense, the mockery and abuse of the Lord's people is a mockery and abuse of Jesus Christ. And Christians are told, don't take revenge. Don't take vengeance. You can't. You don't know enough. You are not, you're not pure enough, if you like. You don't have the righteousness. You don't have the understanding. But I will avenge, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine. And then he uses this extraordinary image of treading the wine press alone. Again, Revelation 19. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Now, what this is saying is it's only Christ alone who can judge. But it's also saying this. Does it not remind you that Christ alone took the judgment? Because you want to stand before God and say, okay, Judge me because I think I'm basically good enough. You really don't want to do that. So what would you do as a Christian? You would, you, I, I think the temptation is so often to despair. And I, I know many Christians who, although they believe the gospel up here, don't get it, don't feel it in here because they're still condemning themselves. And we are dominated by our feelings much as we'd like to think that we are rational beings. But Christ... It's not only the one who judges the wrong, but he is the one who is judged. He took the whole cup and he drank it. He trod the winepress alone. No one in the whole world was with me, he says. The whole work of judgment and the whole work of salvation is holy Christ. No one else is competent and capable. Therefore, hear this, Isaiah 51, 21. You afflicted one, made drunk, but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people. See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. That's extraordinary. That's Jesus saying, we we sang, Jesus paid it all. Well, we do sing. We didn't sing that. We, we do often sing, Jesus paid it all. And I think we, we don't understand the depth of the transaction that is involved. If you want to love Christ more, ask the Lord by his Holy Spirit to show you the depth of your sin and you will understand the beauty and love of Jesus Christ. He took the whole cup. Rabbi Duncan, an old Scottish theologian, Used to, he had a way with pithy sayings and he had a great one. It was the cup of damnation and he drank it willingly and lovingly. That's what Christ has done. That's why I as a Christian can stand here and know that no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. That's the hope that we have 
as believers. And we go on. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. This is God speaking. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. The warrior is not a tyrant who's lost control of his emotions. This is the dark side of redemption. See, once you face up to the fact that there is real evil in the world, that there is real pain in the world, that there is real suffering in the world, that it goes very, very deep into the heart of humanity, that has existed in every age, in every year, in every country, in every town, in every home, amongst every class and every people, then once you grasp that, you look and you say, how is it possible for us to get rid of this evil? And it's not without the king coming and rescuing his people from the forces of darkness. But don't you please ever dare cheapen it by saying, oh, he's God, he can just do it, it doesn't matter. God will just forgive us. That's just the way it is. In order for us to be human and in order for us to choose and in order for us to genuinely and freely love, it takes a phenomenal price. And this is the price. John Mackay, John L. Mackay says this, there's a dark side to praying, may your kingdom come, because the establishment of the kingdom requires the overthrow of all that opposes it. If you wanted Hitler to be defeated, you had to pay a price. If you wanted the Japanese to be defeated, there was a price to be paid. Now, there's an argument about whether Hiroshima and Nagasaki and dropping the atomic bomb was the right price. But you either paid that price with quarter of a million people dying, or you paid the price of 20 million people dying in terms of fighting your way to the Japanese throne. There's no way to defeat evil in this world without pain. And yet, what we do as human beings, we create more evil. It's not like we divide the world into good and bad. There's just some of the most appalling war crimes have been committed by the British and the Scots and so on. We can't, you know, kind of wash our hands and say, well, we're not guilty, because we are. But this is Christ coming, and without any injustice, he purchases our freedom. He purchases our redemption. And knowing that, Isaiah then goes on to talk about prayer. First of all, by looking at the God of history, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yea, the many good things he has done for Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. He said, surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. And so he became their savior. They remember the goodness of God. That is why coming to hear God's word is so important. Because I'll tell you, when you came in here, now this may not be true of everyone, But for most of us, what are we thinking about? We're thinking about ourselves and our current circumstances. We're thinking about perhaps what might happen tomorrow to us. And when we come here, we have this big emphasis on teaching the Bible because we want to take the focus away from you thinking about yourself to thinking about what God has done. Remember the goodness of the Lord. Remember his kindness We need reassurance. You know, it's like a a little child who maybe wakes up in the middle of the night having a nightmare or 
Maybe she suddenly is overwhelmed by fear and dread or feels lonely or has fallen over and is hurt. What does the parent do? The parent doesn't come and sit down and say, right, now I've got to tell you, don't walk there again. Why are you crying or whatever? Some parents might do that, but you need parenting classes. Um, what does a parent do? A parent goes to the child and hugs the child and reassures the child, it's okay, it's dad, it's mom. And those words invoke all the remembrances of the past. What did mom do in the past? What did dad do in the past? They looked after me. They cared for me. They loved me. And this is what God is doing here with his people. He said, who's the, you know, on the watchtower you're seeing, who's he? the avenger is coming, but he's the God who cares for his people. Remember his kindnesses. And the words, a lovely Hebrew word, chesed, which means covenant mercies. And remember all the covenant mercies of God, the deeds for which he is to be praised, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, for his people. His, his abundant goodness, his action which has been absolutely complete, and his compassion, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. It's from the heart. It's kind of, for me, there are lots and lots of things that are hard to understand about God. I actually personally don't have that much difficulty in understanding why God would be angry at sin and evil in the world. I personally have a far greater under, difficulty understanding why would God feel compassion for me? Why? Why would he feel compassion for other people? But that's the glory of the, the gospel, the Christian gospel. It's his compassion. It's from his heart. You may um, have children or you may have a very special friend or you may have somebody just who... When you look at them, your heart fills with compassion. You hate to see them hurt. You love them. You long for them to be blessed. I find it really hard to grasp that that's what God feels about his people. But that is what the word of God says. It's emotional, it's passionate, and it's personal. So when the devil comes and says, you're this and you're that, or the devil accuses you, yeah, but God loves me. And you're not saying that in a general, oh, God loves me and God loves everyone and isn't everything wonderful. That's not what you're saying. You're saying God loves me. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And verse 8 is like a kind of family history. It's a father's hopes for his children. Surely they are my people, children who will be true to me. It's going right back to the beginning of Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. That's the whole story of Isaiah. To be honest, that's the whole story of the whole Bible. God's people rebel against him. Humanity rebels against him. These people who he's chosen, the Jewish people, rebelled against him. Even in the, when you get to the New Testament church, the letters are full of Christians who rebel against God. But the Lord identifies with his people. The Lord hopes the best for them. The Lord commits to save them. The Lord feels our sorrows. The Lord becomes, if you like, our next of kin. And then he reminds them, in all their distress, he too was distressed and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned and became their enemy and he himself 
fought against them. Then his people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who set his Holy Spirit among them, who sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand, who divided the waters before them to gain for himself everlasting renown, who led them through the depths like a horse in open country? They did not stumble like cattle that go down to the plain. They were given rest by the Spirit of the Lord. This is how you guided your people to make for yourself a glorious name. You know what's extraordinary about that? It's reminding me about the Exodus. See people who go, oh, well, the Holy Spirit is in the New Testament, but not in the Old. There are people who haven't read the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who was with them in his presence. It's the Holy Spirit who guided. The angel of his presence, that's a fascinating thing as well. Seeing his face, he lifted them, he carried them. I think it it foreshadows Christ. In their distress, he too was distressed that as a father suffered along with his children. Have you seen it? Have you experienced it? When your child stumbles, falls, and is distressed, and you feel you can't do anything about it, you can't tell them, you, can't, you, 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 you share in their distress. You feel it. And God feels our distress I mean, as I was thinking about this all week, I'm thinking, how is that possible? How can that be? And there are many things I don't grasp about God. And as I said, this is one of them, but I love it. I love the fact that it's true and I believe it, though I don't understand it. Too often, we're far too busy going, I don't understand the bad stuff that happens. What about the good stuff? What about the stuff that is so amazing that if it were true, it transforms your whole life? And it is true, and it does transform your whole life. There isn't a single distress. Going back to Rabbi Duncan again, there is no pit so deep that Christ has not gone deeper still and is not with you. And look at how God behaves. Verses 10 to 14, God is patient with them. He said, they rebelled, and the tone in the language is of, of all people, they rebelled. It's like, again, going back to having lots of children, and maybe you shouldn't do this, but you have one favorite. There's one Joseph. And you can't, of all the people who were, I, I thought she might, and I thought he might, but them, they rebelled. And they're being asked, are we now spiritual orphans because the Jews rebelled, because God's people rebelled? Well, verse 12 tells us of his beautiful arm of power, because the reputation of the Lord is tied up with the fate of his people. So I want you just to be aware of this. In all the turmoil and confusion of life, it's very easy for us to lose our spiritual bearings. And for that reason, it's really appropriate for us to recall how God is, has acted in the past. And I think this is especially what the Lord's Supper is about. In the Lord's Supper, you come with all your sin and everything else as a believer in Jesus, and you don't regain your vision by looking at yourself, you grasp again the greatness of of God's goodness, the greatness of God's compassion, the greatness of God's loving commitment. And unlike Isaiah, we have even more. He uses this most incredible imagery, which I think some of it he must not have understood because we've got the cross to look back on. He had the exodus to look back on, but we have the cross to look back on. And so he says, remember, remember what God 
has done. And then he says, we need to pray. And this is the prayer about a dysfunctional family. Look down from heaven and see from your lofty throne, holy and glorious. Where are your zeal and your might? Your tenderness and compassion are withheld from us. But you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us or Israel acknowledges us, you, Lord, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Look down from heaven. Because here's the problem. Now, please look at your own heart and don't muck around. Don't fool. Don't lie to yourself. Don't. Have you never, ever thought and said, if the Lord's love never changes, where is it now? How come I don't feel it? How come I'm not aware of it? Where is his power and his zeal and his tenderness and his compassion? Because right now, I don't feel it. Right now, I'm in a dark place. Right now, I'm in a black hole. And I do not feel the love and the compassion and the tenderness of God. And indeed, when anyone comes and when the devil comes and accuses God, I'm going, Amen. And condemning myself even for doing that. That's because we're a dysfunctional family and here's why. You are our father, but there are symptoms of estrangement. Every family has tensions and problems, and sometimes these do lead to estrangement so that brother does not speak to brother. Do you know there is far more violence occurs within families than out with them? And that's because the the emotions are so raw and the hurts are so deep. And there are symptoms of estrangement. Obviously, uh, I've been in situations, I remember being at a funeral where um, the widow insisted that uh, one of the sons should not be allowed to attend and that a bouncer be placed on the door to stop him attending. That's estrangement. But here, what's been spoken of is not so much the outward, but the inner estrangement. Let's go on to the next one. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so we do not revere you? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes that are your inheritance. Why, Lord, do you make us wander from your ways and are hard in our hearts so we do not revere you? Now, this is very important to grasp this. This is not Isaiah on behalf of God's people coming and saying to God, it's your fault, you made us wander, you hardened our hearts. That's not what's happening here. This is not an attempt to blame God. This is a confession saying you had no choice but to drive us into the far off country, to the sin where we wanted to go. You had no choice but to do that to us. It's an admission of guilt. And it's a cry to God, look down from heaven and bring us back. We are yours from of old. Other, you're, we possess the holy place. But now our enemies have trampled down the sanctuary. Take us back. It's pleading with God. It is repentance. I guess the worst news that you could hear, I don't know, it's horrible when you hear about, um, you go to the doctor and you hear you've got cancer. It's horrible when you hear about difficult situations in your family. It's horrible if you went into work tomorrow and, and things were just turned completely upside down. It's horrible if you live in a society where there's a great deal of violence and um, you're not secure. All these things are horrible, but I think for the Christian The most horrible thing of all is verse 17. That our hearts are hardened so we do not revere God. And my fear, and I really do mean this, my fear for myself 
and for any Christian here is that you've become so blasé about the gospel, so blasé about the freedom we have, so blasé that we have so many editions of the Bible, so blasé about all these things that we've got all the external things, but inwardly our hearts have become hardened so we are not moved at all by sin, by what Jesus has done, by the love of Christ. We sing the words, but we are like empty gongs, clanging cymbals. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, says Jesus, quoting Isaiah. But it's such a dangerous prayer, isn't it? Lord, look down from heaven and melt our hard hearts. Because that's that's painful. The good thing about hardness is this. You don't love nobody, you ain't going to be hurt by nobody. You don't care about anyone, they're not going to be able to harm you. But you're cold and dead emotionally, spiritually. If you care about Christ, if you care about his people, if you care about his glory and his name, then you will feel the pain and you will share in the sorrow and you will share in the suffering to a little extent of the body of Christ. But oh my, what a difference compared with having a hard heart. Hardened hearts that do not revere you, that do not honor you, that do not worship you. So where does all that leave us? The history of humanity is a history of human rebellion against God. That's why the world is in such a mess. That's why we need to return to God our Father. That's why the old chorus, there's a way back to God from the dark paths of sin. There's a door that is open and you may go in. At Calvary's cross is where you begin when you come as a sinner to Jesus. There is a Redeemer. If you are here and you are not a Christian, there is a Redeemer. There's a darkness within and there's a darkness without and it's so deep you can't fix it. Nobody can fix it. I can't fix it. The church can't fix it. Religion won't fix it. But there is one who comes like the avenger and who takes that darkness and sin and takes the punishment and brings new life and brings new birth. And every Sunday, without fail, you will hear from here the proclamation of that good news because that is what you need to hear and that is what you need to know. There is a redeemer. And those of us who are Christians, I I hope, I hope this doesn't come across as hard. No sense of the presence of the Lord, confusion, wandering. Don't we sing it sometimes? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. I've sometimes heard people say, I don't like singing that because that's not true of me. You know what I want to say? When I hear somebody say that, I have to bite my lip and restrain myself and say, you have no idea what you've just said because God's going to test that. I personally don't know anyone who is not prone to wander. I don't know anyone whose heart is so pure and so good and so, so loving That every time a doubt or a fear or the attacks of the devil or the assaults of other people or the temptations of this world come in, they just go, no, 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 I'm not interested at all. Go away. I don't know anybody like that. I'm not like that. But I do thank the Lord that he knows what we are like. 
and that he's used to his people turning against him, and he's used to backsliders, and he's used to hardening of hearts, and he sends us his spirit, and he sends us his word. And that, again, is why it's so important, and it's so precious, because it's God saying to you, for the sake of my name, I won't let you go. I won't let you fall. I will bring you back. I will bring you back. I used to think that Luther's teaching about the Christian being somebody who repented every day, being somewhat slightly Lutheran in the sense of OTT, as he often was. But he was spot on. There isn't a single day when at night, if I get down on my knees, I haven't lots to say about how sorry I am for wandering away from God, at least internally in my own heart. And that's why I love this passage. That's why I love this prayer. And I love uh, Psalm 34. That's why I love this idea of looking down from heaven and seeing and coming. And it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And nothing is going to stop me. Nothing in this world. Nothing from the principalities of powers. And certainly nothing in you. God says to us, your sin is not so powerful and strong that it can overcome my grace and my mercy. And at that point, we look in wonder and we just say, wow, thank you, Lord. It is extraordinary that we are ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. You know, when families go wrong at times and when there's troubles, occasionally someone will bring in a counselor. In the Christian family, we've got a counselor and he's called the Holy Spirit. That's one of his names. And the primary counseling I think he does is he shows us where our heart is before God and he shows us the solution to our coldness and deadness and he applies it and he brings it home to us so that we see Christ and we worship and love and serve him. May it be so. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and for its power and for its relevance even for its hardness because it challenges us to rethink where we're at and it challenges us to reframe our worldview and it challenges us to be aware of how deep the darkness but how great the love and the grace and the mercy that overcomes that darkness. We bless you that there is a redeemer and that it is Jesus Christ, God's only son and each of us commits ourselves to you, even in this moment. In your name, amen. Let's sing that song, uh, There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Let's stand and sing, and then please remain standing for the benediction. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk.
For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.